Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. How do you get from an idea to a testable drug? How does research into the mechanisms of disease translate into treatments? How do those treatments go from the lab to trials to the clinic? Over the next few episodes of Endpoints, we're going to try to answer some of these questions by looking at one drug, AT1501 an ALS treatment invented by ALS-TDI. AT1501 is a novel antibody that acts in a highly targeted, disease-specific way to tamp down the immune system. In 2018, it became the first drug invented by a nonprofit biotech company to be tested in humans. In November of 2019, it successfully completed a Phase I clinical trial, and a Phase II trial is upcoming. Today, we're joined by ALS-TDI CEO Steve Perrin, who will walk us through the first steps in the process that led to the invention of this drug, the research into the mechanisms of how ALS affects the body, the experiments conducted in the lab, and the identification of a target to treat with a new drug. To start, Steve will tell us about one of the most basic tools needed to study potential treatments in the lab, a reliable animal model that demonstrates the symptoms of the disease in question. To start, um, you know, thanks for joining us, Steve. And uh, scientists use animal models to find potential treatments for disease. But what do we mean when we say an animal model of ALS, and how are they used to discover drug targets? Yeah, Jonathan, that's a great question. I mean, the, I think the first key thing is that uh, is the word model. So. And it doesn't just apply to ALS, it applies to almost every disease indication that one wants to try to develop a treatment or a cure, is that the model that you make is really just a tool. It's not the exact disease uh, typically in, in the model, but you're trying to develop a model that looks as close to the human disease as you can. Uh, and, and that can be really tricky. And in ALS, it has been tricky. Uh, the first animal model of ALS was developed, um, I think it was published around 1997 by Bob Brown's lab when he was at Mass General. And it was after discovering the first gene that was associated with causing familial ALS, the SOD1 gene. So in this particular type of model, he took that human mutated gene that causes ALS in about 2% of people that get ALS, and he put it into a mouse and it took multiple copies to get what we call a phenotype. And a phenotype is, does it actually get a disease? But that's what we mean by a tool. And specifically, um, what makes the SOD1 mouse so important? Another really great question is, I, you know, you'd like to have as many models of a disease as possible because not all diseases are the same. They're heterogeneous, as we know in ALS. You know, if you have 100 people in a room that are recently diagnosed, it's hard to understand which person might progress, you know, very quickly over six to nine months and which person might be Stephen Hawking and live for 30 years. Um, so we've had some lessons learned in, in the SOD community with preclinical models. So another gene that causes ALS, uh, TDP43 mutations, very, very common one uh, in familial ALS. Um, you know, we've had multiple attempts at putting various types of mutant human TDP43 genes into mice, and they don't get classical ALS. They don't get progressive muscle wasting, muscle loss. Um, they have some characteristics of what we see in the human disease, things called RNA foci, 
uh, and the motor neurons of the mice, much like we see in people. But unlike the sod mice, where they sod mice get progressively paralyzed starting at day 70 up until when we have to euthanize at 130, TDP43 mice do not. So we do have these SOD1 mice that display the characteristics that we see in people diagnosed with ALS. How do you leverage that in order to find drugs? Yeah, the fantastic thing about the SOD animal model as a model, again, it has its limitations, it's just a tool, is at the molecular level, there's lots of things that look like the human disease. You can measure the fact that axon transport up and down from the spinal cord, up and down the motor neuron are not as rapid as what one sees in healthy nerves. You can measure and visualize that there's protein misfolding problems uh, in motor neurons in the CNS. Um, you know, you can use tools to visualize that there's neuroinflammation in the spinal cord. These are all things that you can do in an animal model that lets you start to think about target discovery. And you, could you just say a little bit about what target discovery is? Yeah. So all of the things that I just mentioned, um, you know, you need to apply technologies to be able to start to understand many of the things that I just talked about. And so things that you can use in the olden days versus the new days. So gene expression is, is one way to try to understand why some of those things are happening. Why are the nerves getting sick? Why do they die back? You can use changes in gene expression. And you can look at changes in protein modifications as part of trying to piece together a hypothesis on why some of these things happen. And I, and I named a lot of things out of just a small, out of a big basket that's going wrong in ALS that we can see in the mouse model. But one way to leverage the mouse model is to do these gene expression profiling experiments in a longitudinal way over time and do proteomics experiments where you're looking at changes in protein level and modification over time. So what we did in the SOD model many, many years ago uh, is did a very expensive and fairly complex experiment where we started looking at about 12 different tissues in SOD mice compared to wild type animals that don't have the mutant SOD gene. And we started really early, day 30, every 10 days. So day 30, day 50, day 60, day 70, day 90, day 100, 110, 120, 130. And we looked at muscle. We took the muscle out of mice, about five to 10 mice per group. We took out the spinal cords. We took out the brains. We took out uh, lymph nodes, spleen. Uh, and what we did is we did full genome expression profiling of all of those tissues to try to get a picture of what things were changing prior to symptom onset at day 70, where you can start to see the first signs of paralysis all the way to end stage disease. And that gives you a footprint of, of things that might be changing that you can then apply computational biology uh, methodologies to, to try to identify the things that are changing and might be important. And what is computational biology and uh, why is it important in this process of target discovery? Yeah, computational biology is critical to modern day science. So, so all of the master's PhD people out there, you know, take some statistics classes, take some computer programming classes, because science today is done with big data sets. I mean, these types of experiments generate billions and billions of data points, and you're always going to find changes. When you're talking about data sets this big, there's a lot of noise built into them, and you have to apply sophisticated statistical methodologies to pull out what's real and what's meaningful. 
Uh, and that's really important to, to be able to identify out of the billions and billions of data points that these types of experiments generate, what are the things that are going to be most important that you're going to focus your drug discovery efforts on. And so, you know, nothing happens in isolation, right? So it's usually families of, of proteins and, and RNAs that are changing that may lead to a, a specific pathophysiology that's related to a disease. So, you know, it's, it's probably a set of genes that's activating the immune system to recognize the denervated nerves. It's a set of genes and proteins that are activated to try to get rid of the misfolded toxic proteins in a mutant sod mouse. And so we want to identify this pathway, this group of genes and proteins that are working together that may be leading to the damage. It's important to understand that it's not usually a single gene or protein. It's usually a group of genes that are behave together to accomplish something complicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we talk about pathways in terms of disease, what does that refer to specifically? Yeah, so we uh, pathway is just a word for that group of genes that does something in concert. So a good example of that is the ubiquitin system, right? It's a pathway of proteins that it, when it recognizes something that it wants to have degraded, it'll coat that protein with a set of enzymes to have it be recognized for degradation. So it's not just a single protein that basically attacks this, this molecule that it wants to be uh, taken care of. It's a group of proteins. Um, you know, it's a group of proteins that basically puts sugars on a protein prior to that protein getting to the cell surface so that it can function. When, you, when a gene gets turned on and transcribed into RNA at the appropriate time, it's a group of proteins that, you know, transcriptionally activates that gene. So the biological processes, sets of things that we call pathways. And the nice thing about a pathway is that it's usually more than one thing. So that from a drug development perspective, you have an opportunity to hit different parts of the pathway. Some proteins in a pathway may be very difficult to, to build a drug against, but if you know what the other players are that act up and downstream in the pathway, you might be able to develop a drug up or downstream from the ultimate protein that you're trying to target. So the pathway concept and pathway maps are really important downstream pieces of that computational biology process so that you have options for intervening and, and changing the activity of the pathway in more than one way. Because that's, that's really how you're going to stop disease progression. It's blocking the pathway that you think is leading to something that uh, ends up causing the disease. Mm -hmm. And what goes into identifying a pathway that could be uh, malfunctioning and causing a disease? So the first part of, of it is the computational piece where you identify groups of proteins and genes that are all in one pathway that appear to be changing at a critical time in the course of disease progression. It might be right when you start to see clinical symptoms. So maybe it's a pathway that becomes activated in a specific tissue right at the time that you start to first see uh, clinical signs. Maybe it's a pathway, like an example of a cancer model where all of a sudden you see upregulation of a bunch of genes and proteins that are involved in cell proliferation, right? Because cancer tends to be about uh, aberrant control of cell division and growth. If all of a sudden you're using an animal model of cancer 
And right at the time you can identify a bunch of proteins and RNAs that are involved in cell proliferation, you might start to develop drugs to target that and then test it in that animal model to see if you can slow down tumor growth, as an example. Now, Steve will introduce us to the specific target that the team at ALS-TDI zeroed in on while developing AT1501, the co-stimulatory pathway. And uh, what more specifically is a co-stimulatory pathway? Yeah, so out of the computational and gene expression experiments that we did in the sod mice uh, quite some time ago at ALS-TDI, one of the queries that we did into that big, huge data set with billions of data points is show me all of the proteins and genes that are coming on at symptom onset, so around day 70. So things that were not very active prior to that, but that come on in muscle and spinal cord at around symptom onset, day 70, when we can start to see paralysis in the tail and in the hind limbs. One of the pathways or sets of genes that came out of that was genes that are associated with inflammation. And we saw those inflammatory genes come up in, in multiple tissues all around day 70. And a set of them, just a subset of those inflammatory genes were in a pathway called the co-stimulatory pathway. And that is a pathway that controls amplification of an immune response to either things that are non-self. So it, that pathway becomes activated to kill infections but it also becomes highly activated in diseases like autoimmunity, like diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. So a lot was known about that pathway and, and, and how to modulate it and how to block it. So that was an exciting finding for us. Nobody had ever mentioned activation of the co-stimulatory pathway in ALS. Inflammation had been mentioned many, many times going back, you know, 50, 70 years, but nobody had ever said, huh, this particular pathway that governs the activation of pro-inflammatory signaling is upregulated in ALS. That, that was a novel discovery that we made as part of that computational biology gene expression profiling experiment. And in these experiments, um, we focused on uh, the CD40L gene. Uh, so what do we mean when we say that that particular gene is a co-stimulatory molecule? Yes, we have to dive in a little bit on what the co-stimulatory pathway specifically is in order to answer that one. It's a great question. So the immune the mammalian immune system is, is really an evolutionarily exquisitely complicated system to fight off infections and protect you from infections. Um, and there has to be some checkpoints in it. So the way it works is as follows. When and I'll, and I'll use a couple of examples. We've already mentioned the concept of an infection. So when you get a bacterial infection, that bacteria is in your body. It's recognized by immune cells of like macrophage dendritic cell lineage that eat those cells. It's called phagocytosis. Those cells recognize that the bacteria is not you. They'll engulf them. And during that exercise, they'll digest the proteins that make up the bacteria and they'll take little fragments or peptides, they're called little fragments of those proteins, and they'll display them on their cell surface on receptors called MHC receptors. And the reason that they do that is they're trying to tell other immune cells that, hey, something is in the body that's not you. And so a second cell type bumps into these antigen presenting cells, these macrophages and dendritic cells that are displaying foreign peptides on their surface. 
And those cells are called lymphocytes or T cells. So a T cell will bump into that cell in circulation, just like if you know two things bumping into each other arbitrarily, they're moving through the blood really fast. The T cell has a receptor on it called the T cell receptor that binds to and recognizes those MHC receptors. And if the T cell receptor interaction with that MHC on the antigen presenting cell, if that interaction is potent because the peptide really doesn't look like any human protein, that interaction becomes strong. And the next thing that would happen is a transcriptional activation in the lymphocyte of the CD40 ligand gene. And that expression will end up in a protein being made that's another cell surface receptor that all of a sudden pops onto the surface of the T cell. This all happens in microseconds. It really happens that quickly. But once the CD40 ligand proteins now on the cell surface of the T cell, it will bind to its cognate ligand on the exact same antigen presenting cell that that T cell is already talking to, and that's called the CD40 receptor. If these two receptor interactions happen, which is called activation of co-stimulatory signaling, that's when the T cell does a lot of amazing things. It first of all gets angry because it recognizes something that's not you. It will start to secrete what's called pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are signals to tell more T cells to come in and bump into this antigen presenting cell because we don't like it. In addition to that, that one T cell will go through what's called clonal expansion. It will start replicating like nobody's business way faster than tumor cells replicate so that it makes more of its exact self that's already expressing these receptors on the cell surface and they're activated. So it amplifies this immune response. So this is a really sophisticated process of how the mammalian um, system has evolved to recognize things that are foreign. The bad thing here, so, so let's back up one more second before I say what's bad about the system. In the initial interaction where the T cells, T cell receptor bumps into the MHC molecule, the foreign peptide, if that foreign peptide and that interaction is weak because that peptide may have some human qualities to it, it may have some sequences that are somewhat human. If the, if the interaction is weak because the T cell goes, no, that's not really a foreign antigen, it could be human. What happens there is the two cells dissociate from one another and the T cell actually dies. It's programmed to die so that it doesn't kill self, right? I mean, every MHC molecule also expresses human peptides, which you don't want T cells to start recognizing you. Unfortunately, in the context of autoimmune diseases, that's exactly what happens. A good example of that is in the context of a disease like rheumatoid arthritis. In that disease, you get local inflammation in your joints. And the reason why that happens is because there's a specific protein in your joints called collagen and MHC molecules will start expressing small peptide fragments of collagen and present that to T cells and the T cells don't think it's you. And so they'll start that pro-inflammatory process of binding to the MHC with the T cell receptor, thinking it's not you, even though it is, go to the next step and secrete and get CD40 ligand on the surface, bind to CD40 on that antigen presenting cell and start to locally secrete all of those damaging pro-inflammatory molecules. Because what they're trying to do is get rid of the local foreign substance that they're recognizing, not knowing that it's actually you. So in autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, they're recognizing peptides on neurons in the brain. In rheumatoid arthritis, they're recognizing peptides that are on collagen in your joints. 
in some kidney diseases, it's an autoimmune response to peptides that are present on cells in your kidney. Um, in psoriasis, they're recognizing peptides that are present on antigens in your skin. So unfortunately, this really cool evolutionarily designed system does have the liability that it can sometimes start recognizing things that are you. And that's why blocking CD40 ligand could be a very attractive way to shut this pathway down to help treat and cure diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, kidney diseases, and potentially ALS and Alzheimer's disease, both of which activate this pathway and activate inflammation in the brain and spinal cord. Yeah, and that, um, that brings us to my next question, uh, which is why you chose to uh, focus on the CD4EL gene. And, you know, is it, it, it is mutated in people with ALS? So actually it's not. And it's uh. actually not mutated in people with autoimmunity either. So the gene is actually completely normal. Um, but because the protein is activated as part of this autoimmune response, if we can figure out a way to block the protein function, then you're going to shut down the activation of the pathway. So the, the gene is actually not mutated in any autoimmune diseases or, or ALS or Alzheimer's and people with any of those diseases. But because we know how the protein becomes activated, that ends up being a good therapeutic target. Yeah, so by focusing on this gene, you can stop the immune response that might be happening in response to other mutations that could be present. Yeah, so when we discovered that the co-stimulatory pathway was upregulated in sod mice, what we kind of did is said, huh, we know that the co-stimulatory pathway is overactivated in autoimmunity, and we know that there's animal models of autoimmunity have any scientists ever blocked the pathway and showed that you could slow down, you know, multiple sclerosis in an animal model, or can you slow down lupus in an animal model? And the answer to that was yes. And that people had developed anti-CD40 ligand antibodies that recognizes mouse CD40 ligand. And that if you took those antibodies and treated autoimmune animal models, it, it basically stopped autoimmunity from happening in those mice. So we went and got the murine version of that anti-CD40 ligand antibody to test the hypothesis. If we use this antibody to block CD40 ligand activation so that T cells don't become activated and they don't become pro-inflammatory, would it slow down disease in, in animal models of ALS? And the answer to that was yes. In fact, it was the first drug that we had tested. I think at that time, this was around 2010. I think it was about the 270th drug that we had put in animal models of ALS, the SOD1 model in particular. And this was the first one that slowed down disease progression. It improved survival. When we went and looked at the molecular mechanism on how it was doing those two things, it turned out that it decreased macrophage attack on peripheral nerves. It improved the neuromuscular junction connection, that connection between the nerve and the muscle that connection was much more stable. Uh, it decreased neuroinflammation in the spinal cord. So it knocked down microglial and astrocyte activation so that the inflammation around motor neurons in the spinal cord was much, much less. So it did lots of amazing things. Uh, and you know, it, like I said, it was about the 270th drug that we had tested. So a, a pretty profound result at the time. We were, we were very, very excited about it. 
So when you've discovered something like CD40L, a gene or an RNA or a protein and a pathway that could be a potential target, what is the next step that you guys took in those experiments? How do you approach trying to affect its function to create therapeutic benefit for people with ALS? I mean, that's the challenging part typically, just because you find a gene or an RNA or a protein that might be interesting, you can't always develop a drug to test it, right? So, so in the case of CD40 ligand, we happened to find an antibody that somebody else had made that we could at least test the hypothesis in mice. Sometimes you might find a small molecule, right? An antibody is a big protein. It's, you know, it's, it has its own unique characteristics to it, but if it's a different target or a different gene, maybe there's a small molecule, something like an orally available pill that you can find that you could treat the mice with. But your, your next step after you find an interesting target is to try to find a way to block that target. And in some cases, a small molecule is the best approach. In some cases, an antibody might be the best approach. In some cases, you might want to knock the gene function out with an antisense RNA that targets the gene itself. Every, every target requires a different strategy. And sometimes you might have multiple strategies. You might make a small molecule and an antisense. But I think once you find the target, the next step, you have to take a step back and you have to say, all right, we want to try to block the function of this entity what's the best way to do it? And that takes time. Sometimes if there's not an existing off-the-shelf reagent and you have to make it yourself, that could take years just to develop a novel small molecule to specifically target a function of a protein could be a two-year process. So there's a little bit of art there. There's a little bit of luck there. You, If there's existing reagents out there that you can license or, or buy off the shelf, that is certainly the fastest way to go. But that is a very target-specific process, that next step of finding a drug to put into the animal model to see if it has an effect. And, you know, we addressed this a little bit already, but specifically, you know, how could toning down the co-stimulatory pathway help fight the uh, specific effects of ALS? Yeah, so, I mean, blocking inflammation in any disease can end up having positive benefit. The inflammatory system that helps fight infections is a, is a critical one, or else we would probably all die as soon as we're born, because you're, you're pretty much exposed to uh, nasty types of parasites even in utero before you're born. So the pathway is critical, but if you can subtly modulate, modulate inflammation in the context of an autoimmune disease where the system's kind of gone awry, that was our thought on how to provide therapeutic benefit, right? Our hypothesis was the macrophages killing nerves in the muscle beds is probably a bad thing because once you kill them and eliminate them, they're never coming back. And, and once a muscle unit doesn't have electrical stimuli from that motor neuron coming out of the spinal cord, it's going to atrophy. So one of our hypotheses was if we can block this pathway, we'll keep those motor neurons alive. We kind of didn't expect the connections to go back. We knew that there was this concept of plasticity that's in the literature that, you know, motor units and nerves kind of detach and they reattach and the strength of that connection, you know, you can, you can strengthen it. But we were kind of surprised actually on how well blocking the pathway improved innervation in the muscle groups. And that was the, you know, the really first clue on how it was working. The second thing that was really interesting was we, and we weren't really clear that it was going to work or not, was can blocking this 
pathway that sits in your bloodstream knock down inflammation in the spinal cord, right? So the thing that really is the demise of the motor neuron in the spinal cord is the activation of microglial cells and astrocytes, which create this toxic environment around the sick and dying motor neurons in the spinal cord. It turns out that by blocking this pathway, you also knock down the activation of microglia and astrocyte activation. So that toxic environment that's being developed in the progress of ALS was also shut down. So you're kind of getting two bangs for your buck. You're knocking down inflammation in the muscle beds that is not great, but you're also knocking down inflammation in the spinal cord. So we're kind of getting uh, two bangs for our buck by knocking down CD40 ligand signaling. Great. Well, um, that seems like a pretty good place to end it for today. And we can pick up this conversation in a couple weeks about how we got from this hypothesis to a drug. That sounds like a perfect place to end. I agree. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. For more information about AT1501, visit als.net slash AT-1501. And keep an eye out for the next episode of our series about the drug, where we'll discuss how this research came together to produce a potential treatment for people living with ALS. Thanks for listening.